Well, good morning once again, Emmanuel. My name is Pastor Mark Hazen. Glad to be with you this morning. Glad to be leading you in the Word of God. Good to see you here this morning. Yesterday morning, I got up and uh, I threw on a shirt and a sweater that I had not worn since sometime late last winter or maybe early spring. And I threw on that shirt and sweater and I consequently sneezed about 50 times in a row. And uh, I've kind of had a tickle in my nose ever since then. And so I've got a box of Kleenex up here if I need to uh, utilize that, but uh, you bear along with me. And uh, I, I think there are others that I've contacted this morning that's like, yeah, seasonal allergies are here or colds or whatever it is. But uh, anyways, glad to be with you this morning. This morning we reached the... Uh... Oh, bless you. <laughs> this morning we reached the conclusion of our... Um short sermon series in the book of the Song of Solomon, and uh, so you can take your Bibles out and turn there if you would. But in, a, in an Old Testament book on love and romance and marital relations and physical intimacy, uh, we together, as we've gone through this book, we have looked at the themes of chemistry, character, commitment, and this morning we're going to conclude by looking at the last two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, and the last two themes of our study, which would be consummation and celebration. And so again, chapter 7 is where we're going to go. We'll read both of these chapters this morning as part of our sermon. And um, I'm thinking through probably 86 years of Emmanuel history, this might be the first time in our history of a church where we've read the entire book of Song of Solomon together. But we'll do that in just a moment. But uh, before we uh, jump into our message, let's look to the Lord in prayer, and, and then we'll get into our message for this morning that comes from the text. Heavenly Father, it is uh, good again, as we say every Sunday, it's just good to be here. We're glad to gather together. We're glad to be a community. We're glad that as a community together, we have songs that we sing uh, together unto you, uh, our worship, our uh, appreciation of you, and uh, we're also glad to gather together to read your word and to be instructed by it, to be blessed by it, to be benefited by it. I pray that as we read your word this morning and give some sustained meditation to it, that you would direct our thoughts And as always, continue renewing our minds and conforming our lives into the image of your perfect one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, turn with me uh, again, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. It won't get very far. It says, how beautiful, how beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Let's pause there for a moment. Here, if you've read through this this past week, and as we're going to read through it this morning, we are about to read through another physical description of the bride's beauty, describing her beautiful body in interesting and descriptive metaphors. Uh, This time, we're going to travel not head to feet, but feet to head. We've been top to bottom before, and now we're going bottom to top. And uh, we're very familiar with this territory because how many times, as we've read through this book, have we read through this descriptive language of the bride's body? Multiple times, right? This is the third time. This woman's beauty is verbally affirmed in nearly every chapter, but specifically her beauty is affirmed in chapters 1, 4, 6, and 7, and then her body is described in chapters 4, 6, and 7. So we're reading through a very familiar territory for us, a very familiar path in the Song of Solomon. Well, let's, let's look at it. Verses, uh, we'll read the whole chapter now. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter... Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath ribbon. 
Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks down toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowing locks are like purple. Royalty, or your hair is dyed, one or the other. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all of your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the valleys. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and besides our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. While reading another description of the women's beauty and reading another detailed description of her body, and then standing back from the text as a whole. We've read through, you know, all the way up to this point. When you stand back from the book as a whole and and you observe that this repeatedly happens in the song, it it draws up an interesting thought in my own mind as it relates to love and romance and lovemaking and marriage. And the thought is this, tell her, show him. Tell her, show him. Repeatedly in this song, her beauty is praised. Verbally, audibly, she hears with her ears her lover's affection and appreciation of her God-given physical magnificence. She hears as he repeatedly praises her body. It's like Adam seeing his wife for the first time. Whoa! He checks her out from head to toe and toe to head. And he repeatedly praises her physical beauty because he sees her. This seems somewhat clear, or at least evident in the song by what is repeated. He is visually driven, and she is audibly affirmed. Reading this song on love and romance seems to be teaching by what it repeats. She needs to hear what he sees and appreciates. And what he sees and appreciates leads to the sharing between them, a consummation of their love for their mutual pleasure. You know, going back over this whole song and reading through all of the chapters and uh, noticing that again that her physical beauty is praised in nearly every chapter and her body is described in at least three of those eight chapters, we also discover that there are 22 physical attributes specifically mentioned in the song. Most of them are hers. He gets one bodily description, and that's when she describes him to her friends so that they might find her in that first dream sequence. But her physical beauty gets the most attention, and the most repeated descriptions of her body are her breast, and then her eyes, her hair, her lips, and her facial features. And so there's an interesting application, as I, a simple application I make from this observation. Husbands... Roll out the compliments on your wife's physical beauty. Your affirmation of her physical beauty and her physical attractiveness to you is meaningful to her. And then wives know that your husbands are captivated visually by your beauty. Whether that beauty is veiled or unveiled, your husband loves how God has made you and you are his. A second observation from this chapter, which we've just read, comes from verse... 10, chapter 7, verse 10. I want to take you back to that verse. 
Here we find the woman, the bride, saying, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. This statement, made from the lips of the woman, takes us back to the Garden of Eden. In the very beginning, God creates a beautiful world, and he fills that beautiful world with creativity and color, a magnificent space for mankind to dwell. God creates the man and the woman in his image. He makes them for a relationship, and he gives them responsibility. He puts them together as husband and wife, and he gives them dominion over all that he has created. God gives them freedom. God gives them responsibility, and he gives them only one prohibition. God says to the man and the woman, rule this place. Guard the garden. Cultivate the garden. Multiply the human race. Just don't eat from this one tree. And quite frankly, we can't imagine a world with only one prohibition. We can't fathom it. (laughs) In the fallen, broken world in which we live, the U.S. government has more laws on the books than you could read in your entire lifetime. So God creates this beautiful world, makes mankind in his image, male and female, puts them together as a relationship as husband and wife, gives them freedom and responsibility, rule the world, cultivate the garden, multiply, just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and not eating of the one tree that God told them not to eat of, they would demonstrate their faith in God's authority and their confidence in his goodness. Well, we know the story, the Satan. It's a title, like the Christ, the Satan, the, the Satan, the adversary, comes to the garden in the form of a serpent, and Adam doesn't crush his head when, God, when he discredits God's character and denies God's word. The first crushing, the first killing in the garden should have been Adam crushing Satan's head when he discredits God's character and denies God's word. The Satan comes along and questions God's word, and then he makes a false promise of personal power. He claims that in disobeying God, they would become like God themselves, with great wisdom and with power. Eating of the tree that God told them not to eat of would make them wise and establish them as God themselves. Eating of the tree would be a promotion. It would be an advancement. God is holding them back. God is repressing them. Well, they believe the lie. And Eve eats of the tree, and Adam, who is with her, does the same, and mankind falls under the authority of the usurper, the evil one. Because, after all, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. And they went from obeying God to obeying Satan. After the collapse of humanity and the corruption of God's creation freedom, God comes to mankind and he promises a rescuer. What incredible grace. He promises a rescuer, a deliverer. A man would be born of a woman. A man would come from their race, and he would succeed where human failed. And he would liberate humanity from the power of the evil one, and he would liberate creation from its corruption and decay. This promised man would crush Satan's head, and this promised man would free creation from its bondage. But while mankind waited in faith for this promised deliverance, coming from this promised deliverer, mankind would live with the consequences of their disobedience until his kingdom would come and be established at the end of the age. The curse for mankind, 
The curse for man would be his work would be hard. His work would be hard and it would be marked with futility because after all, he's going to die. He's gonna work hard all of his life and he's going to die and take nothing with him. And so for man, his work would be hard and marked with futility. Death would need to be defeated. For the woman, what's the curse on the woman? She would have pain in childbirth, something we don't see in the rest of creation. Your pet cat doesn't have pain giving birth to 12 little kittens. But the woman is going to have pain in childbirth. Every time a son and daughter is born is a reminder of, yeah, this is the world we live in. The woman would have pain in childbirth, and then it says her desire would be for her husband, and he would rule over her. That's a curse. Conflict is now introduced into the relationship. Conflict they didn't know before. Conflict they knew nothing about before their disobedience. Following the fall, she will want to rule over her husband. And he will want to rule over her. And he's stronger. They will now have broken desires toward one another. And instead of ruling together as heirs together in the grace of life, they're now going to want to rule over one another. There are now barriers to their oneness. Barriers to their unity, harmony, and intimacy. They now want to get their own way. They've turned in on themselves as opposed to serving and pleasing one another. He will be stronger and will dominate her, and she will get her own way by being manipulative. (laughs) She has what he wants. She has what he sees and desires. And she can now control that. And so there's relationship disharmony. The unity and harmony and intimacy has been negatively affected by the fall and conflict has been introduced into the relationship. But here we read in the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. In this love relationship, that is marked with other orientation and self-unconsciousness, where the husband is lost in his lover and she is freely given herself to him and neither of them are self-regarding, in this pursuit and praise and pleasure of one another, this is like the curse reversed. The curse was, you will desire your husband and he will rule over you. Now she's singing, his desire is for me, not to dominate or control, but to please And then you read a few verses later, and she's like, hey, come into the garden. There I will give you my love freely, not as a reward, not as a payment, but as a gift. So we learn something very powerful here in this song, here in the latter chapters. When love is freely given and freely shared in the context of a willing covenant, When love is freely given, freely shared, not coerced, not manipulated, not meted out in a system of rewards and punishments, but freely given in humility and unity and with harmony and for the pleasures of intimacy, this is like a pre-fall experience. This is like the curse reversed. (laughs) It's not surprising that even when popular musicians 
We said in the very first message that music and movies frequently are on the theme of love and romance. And it's not surprising that even popular musicians who have no regard for God have significant thoughts about sex. And they sing about it all the time. And in the referencing the lovemaking act in their songs, they refer to it as heaven on earth, a return to paradise, a transcendent experience gained nowhere else. Musicians frequently reference sex in their songs with theological terms, heaven on earth, a return to paradise. Well, why is that? Well, we know sex is sacred. When God has given, what God has given in the beginning for pleasure and for procreation, and as we learned last week, for the promotion of the husband and wife's unity, is also a powerful expression of self-giving love. And self-giving love is an expression of who God is. God is love. Freely giving himself to the other, and he's done it from all eternity because he's always had the other to be loving toward. God has always existed in a fellowship of a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they've always been fully attentive to the other and giving themselves to the other for all eternity, and the creation of mankind is an overflow of that love. Remarkable. In this song, the woman who is loved by her man, not overpowered by him, but noticed and tenderly treated, the woman who is not looking to rule over her husband, but is freely surrendering herself to her husband in love, we discover this is quite powerful. This is like the curse reversed. Not only is this physical intimacy a strong glue to their commitment, but it's like the curse being reversed in their union. This is powerful. And this is beautiful. This is the consummation of their love. This love song in the Bible is teaching us how to think about these things. What box to put them in. Well, let's move forward. Chapter 8. Oh, this is the bride singing again. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. Now, that's a strange statement here at this song. But if you read back through the song, you would remember that the husband continues to refer to his bride as my sister, my bride. And now she's saying, I wish you were like a brother to me. So one thing that we do know is that they're talking about strong, intimate bonds, like a family. And we're going to find out a little bit why she says, I wish you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast as we read on. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. So maybe there's something there with public displays of affection that are appropriate for family, but not for others. I, I don't know. I would lead you and bring you into my the house of my mother, bring, her, bring you home, she who used to teach me, no one better to teach about these things than mom, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's the third time we've heard that, this song as well. Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. This might be the first reference in the song to the effects of lovemaking, offspring. My wife and I have four children. They are now all married and they're having off children. It's like miracle upon miracle. It's an amazing thing. Set me as a seal upon your heart. 
as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. It, love, flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Let's pause there for a moment. Here are some strong, renowned expressions for the power of love. She sings, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. In other words, impress me upon your heart and wear me on your sleeve. Identify with me completely through your inner decisions and your outer actions express to me and others that we belong to one another. Let me know and let everyone know that we belong to one another. Set me as a seal on your heart and as a seal upon your arm. The, love, uh, the song goes on to say, love is as strong as death. It is as potent as fire. It's more valuable than any price that could be offered for it. Love, love is a powerful thing. In the Bible, death is a powerful enemy. It is the last enemy to be destroyed. Christ destroyed death with his resurrection, which guarantees and secures our resurrection when he returns for those who have pledged their faith in him. Death is destroyed by resurrection. Death is a powerful enemy. And in this song, it acknowledges that even death cannot defeat love. Death cannot defeat love. That's powerful language. You go ask a widow or widower if death of their loved one has been defeated through their loved one's passing. Uh, the last funeral I had here just a few months ago was Sandy Gerard. Uh, Doug Gerard has, I've had conversations with Doug Gerard through this series. He's not here this morning. He's off with his family out east, but he's been here. He's here all the time. You know Doug Gerard. In December, this coming December, just a few months away, they would have celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. So they're married 59 years. You ask Doug about his wife. You ask Doug about their marriage. Like I said, I've talked to him as we've gone through the series. He will tell you that their relationship is more valuable than gold. And their love is stronger than death. And his death for her has not been diminished. Her love for her has not been diminished through her passing. So here the song says, love is as strong as death, love is as potent as fire. Fire is a powerful force. I have a fire going in my furnace right now at home. At least I hope I do. <laughs> a fire in the furnace heats the home, and it's a pleasure to everyone. Fire that is uncontained and uncontrolled burns down whole communities. Go ask the people in Hawaii. The woman in the song repeatedly sings, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's singing that to the young girls. And she's saying, you, you want to have the right things in place before you light that fire. You, you want fire in its proper place for the good of everyone. You don't want fire to be without its protective boundaries because it can get destructive. Love is a powerful thing. And in the song, the women and the man are expressing the strength and power of their love, saying love is as strong as death, as potent as fire, and more valuable than gold. Genuine love is more valuable than any gift that could be given. Well, let's read the last paragraphs. I think we left off in what, verse 8? This gets interesting, too, at this very end of the song. Verse 8, it sings, We have a little sister, and she has no breast. It means she's physically immature. She's young. 
What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, great. We will build on her battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. No one goes in and out through walls. But people go in and out through doors. And they're singing of their little sister and saying, if she's a wall, that's fantastic. We'll adorn that wall. But if she's a door, if she's going to be promiscuous, we'll board her up. We'll protect our little sister. That's interesting. And then in verse 10, the bride sings, I was a wall. And my breasts were like towers. She's just the opposite of little sister in that she's physically mature and ready for marriage. And she said, I was a wall. She's entering into this relationship, chase, pure. The time has come. I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace, shalom, wholeness. Peace is the fruit of going God's way. The contrast to going to God's way? Solomon, verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Belhimron. He, let out that, he lent out that vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, who know nothing of this because you have not gone God's way. You and your 700 wives and 300 concubines. You, O Solomon, you may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, 200. He sings, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it, let me hear your voice. And she sings, Make haste, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. As we close out this series, I want to take you, I have just a few minutes left is all, I want to take you to a place the original readers could not have gone because they don't have the revelation that we have. This was written before the time of Christ. The Bible begins with a wedding in a garden. And the Bible ends with a wedding in a city. That's where the story goes. That's where the story is taking us. That's where history is headed. Uh, The Bible is not a self-help book where, oh, I've got questions. Yeah, I'm going to run to the Bible and find my answers. No, the the Bible isn't a self-help book. The Bible's a story. It's a big, epic story. And it's a love story. The Bible begins with a wedding in a garden between two people, and the Bible ends with a wedding in a city between Jesus and a multitude of people. That's interesting. That's different. Adam and Eve are that first couple, and they're the progenitors of the human race. Jesus and his bride at the end of time, Jesus and his bride, that believing community who have pledged their faith in him, they are the final couple. At the end of the age, when Jesus, the promised deliverer, returns. See, Jesus was promised back in the garden when the fall came. And Jesus came in the perfect time. And he bore our sins away, crushed Satan's head, defeated death with his powerful resurrection. He's the promised deliverer, and he's coming back. And when he returns at the end of the age, there will be hosted on a new earth what the Bible calls 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. A wedding feast. The consummation of our salvation. The completion of our sanctification. God will dwell with his people. Jesus will be king. His bride will reign with him forever. All of creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and death. The curse will be no more. And relationships with God and with one another will be perfected. We have no imaginative category for that experience. We can't begin to comprehend that. And as one commentator said, at the end of the age in the new earth, it will all be marriage. Because the end of the age begins with the marriage supper of the Lamb. It'll all be marriage, marriage with Jesus, union with God. Everyone will be united in a marriage-type relationship with God and with one another that we can't even begin to comprehend. We have no box for that. Jesus says to those who questioned him that uh, we won't be given in marriage to one another on that day, a, a reality we can't begin to fathom. We can't fathom it. Doug was married to his wife nearly 60 years. Lynn and I have been married for 35 years. I can't imagine it. What would it be like to not be married and to be satisfied and fulfilled and relationally complete? Yeah, I can't fathom that. We don't have a box for it. We won't be given in marriage any longer for we're all brought into a human relationship that far surpasses our present relational experiences. Well, with these thoughts in mind, let me remind you where the Song of Solomon ends. The book ends with the bride singing, Make haste, my beloved, come quickly. Come again, come quickly. Love, on this side of the new earth, is never completely satisfied. The song doesn't end with them consummating their love relationship. It ends with her saying, Come, come again, make haste. So we learn from this that the best that this world has to offer as it relates to human relationships doesn't reach the point of complete satisfaction and ultimate fulfillment. But it points toward it. It points to that time when our groom will come and we'll be joined to him in a relationship and in an experience with him and with one another we don't have boxes for. We can't begin to imagine it. There's coming a day when the curse will be no more and sin will be no more, and conflict will be no more, and our experience will be eternal marriage to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Can't imagine it. We read chapter 7 and 8 this morning. Chapter 7, verse 11, the bride is saying to her husband, come, <laughs> come, come into the garden, I'll give you my love. And the song ends with her singing it all over again, make haste, my beloved, come quickly. It's been interesting this last week. Uh, people have been asking me, have, have people from the congregation been interacting with you on the Song of Solomon? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have been interacting with me on the Song of Solomon. But the more repeated question in this last week is, hey, there's a war going on. Israel's at war with Hamas. How does that fit in your end times chronology? How does that fit with your eschatology, Pastor Mark? Lots of questions related to that. Well, let me give you my short answer. Jesus is coming again. 
He might come sooner than we expect. His return might be delayed longer than we want. But he's coming again, and I can't wait. I'm looking forward to that day because it's a relational experience I have no boxes for. It's better. It's way better than I currently experience. Can't fathom that. It's remarkable. The Song of Solomon, we're going to conclude our study with these statements. The Song of Solomon is an Old Testament book. It offers great and glorious vision for love and romance and physical intimacy to be enjoyed by a husband and wife. But the greatest instruction that marriage can receive is looking at the harmony and unity and fellowship that is enjoyed within the Godhead. And then looking at the relationship that will be when Christ returns for his bride. That vision is a glorious vision for marriage. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, this has been a powerful, potent little book, and uh, we've, we've learned a lot from it. And uh, grateful for what it has taught us, for what it teaches us, for what it reminds us. Grateful for, even now at the conclusion, how we project our eyes forward to the return of our groom. Pray that we might be faithfully waiting for his arrival, keeping ourselves unto him. And I pray that you'd give us strength for that as we wait. Father, we love you. We thank you that you've loved us first. And you've displayed and given your love and revealed your love to us in a book, words written down. And you've given your love to us perfectly in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who displayed your love for us at the cross where he became sin for us. The barriers that existed in our relationship, the brokenness that was between us, Jesus has mended that in his own body. The sin which was the barrier, he paid for that sin and removed it. And Father, what an amazing grace it is to trust in Jesus and, and be miraculously reconciled to you and brought into your family as children, relate to you as our heavenly Father, be brought into a relationship that is expressed with the metaphor of marriage, united to Christ in a union that will never end in a consummation that will be experienced when he returns. Father, we thank you for this grand love story. Thank you for revealing it to us. We pray that you continue to grow us in our knowledge of it, that it might impact the working out of our days as we live here. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.